Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Today, uh, we'll be concluding our series that we've been exploring together of the life of David through his Psalms. Um, And as the sermon title suggests, these are the last words of David. The last time we were together, we looked at the subject of how David dealt with divine consequences of his sins with the rebellion of his son Absalom. And over the past few months, as we look together, uh, David's had much of a life, and he's shared quite a bit with us, hasn't he? He has given us the inner workings of a mind of a person whose lifestyle was one that pleased God. As recorded in Acts 13.22, And when he had removed him, this is God removing Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found David in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. We've seen together in David's personal reflections a life of thanksgiving and gratitude with Saul's assassins, Uh, a way to deal with injustice when David heard of the massacre of the priest at Nob, a practice of reflective prayer when David dealt with the betrayal of his kinsmen, the Ziphites, the power of peace in relinquishing power when he was confronted, as we've seen in his many cave dwellings, the manner of mourning sin, as we saw when he was confronted with his grand sin involving Bathsheba and Uriah. And of course, the most recent one, a focus of hope even in the midst of consequence expressed in the heat of Absalom's rebellion. David's life, after now serving the purpose of God in his own generation, comes to a close. And what we'll be looking at together this morning is the last words of David recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. And what are we to make of last words? Besides them being hard to come up with at times. If someone, if somehow you knew you were in your last moments, what would you share with those who would hear you? Who would be influenced by what you had to say? What would you have them remember? It's a film that's about 17 years old now. Um, it's simply titled John Q. I don't know if any of you have seen it, um, but it follows the story of John Q. Archibald. He was a factory worker um, that was facing some financial hardship when they cut hours, and then he's confronted with a terrible discovery that his son, his young child, is in need of emergency heart transplant um, that their insurance won't cover. Um, After a series of failed attempts to gain the wages. Um, John is left with no recourse but to take his son home uh, and wait for him to die. So his sorrow and his grief causes him to snap, um, and he holds the staff and patients of a hospital's emergency room hostage at gunpoint, uh, unwilling to accept the death of his son. And this leads to a moment later in the film um, that John figures out a way to save his son. And he persuades the surgeon, who happened to 
you know, be hostage in this emergency room to allow himself to be the heart donor for his son um, after a planned suicide. When the surgeon reluctantly agrees, uh, John spends a few moments with his son alone uh, and he shares his own last words with him and telling them that they found, they found a heart for him. And he tells them the following words. Always listen to your mother. Tell her you love her every day. And even though you're too young for girls and the time comes, treat them like princesses. When you say you're going to do something, do it. Because your word is your bond. Make money if you get the chance because everything is easier with money. Don't smoke. Be kind to people. If someone chooses you, you stand up and be a man. And please stay away from the bad things. There's so many great things out there for you. And remember, I am always with you as he motions uh, to his son's heart where his own heart will soon be. Um, the actor is Denzel Washington. He does a much better job than I do. Um, but uh, it's a very touching scene. It's a very touching scene as we could imagine. And last words are normally what we want remembered. What we want remembered by those who survive us, those who come after us. And what we find recorded in our text this morning isn't so much the final words of David uttered on his deathbed, but it's the final official statement of David, the king of Israel, to his people. What he would have them recall, remember, hold on to when they look back at his life. It is a summary of what he discovered, experienced, and treasured all the days that God had given to him. And let us take counsel of this ancient king and get the most out of our lives by living them in a way in which King David encouraged and King Jesus realized a life in which God is always at the center. So let's read our text this morning, which is 2 Samuel 23, and we'll read verses 1 through 7 together here. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the appointed, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all my help and my desire, but worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron in the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. David left many psalms uh, and lessons behind that would feed the minds and the hearts of his people, even to this very day, as we've studied some of them together. We learn much from this life of a shepherd man who turned into a warrior king, who had experienced many blessings 
many honors, but also many embarrassments, pains, dangers, and grief. And Acts 13.36 records for us the following. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers. And what we find in the last words of this mighty king is a summary of what David aspired for his and ultimately all people. And the aspirations he leaves for us are several appeals of living. That taking them to heart and seeking them would lead us to live joyful, hopeful, and gracious lives with God. And therefore, let's look at these appeals that David leaves for us. The first being, recognize and submit to the proper authority. Recognize and submit to the proper authority. Verses 2 to 4. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light and the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grouse sprout from the earth. In verse 4, this latter portion of this section, David poetically describes for us what occurs when we recognize and submit to the proper authority. The authority that brings about a feeling and an experience that is like the morning light when the dark and cold have enveloped you for so long. And when everything is lost, the sunrise comes and breaking through over the horizon. And it brightens the sky and produces fruit and color and energy in our lives. And we've sung about that this morning, haven't we? C.S. Lewis captures this feeling so well that I had to share it. Uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, Narnia is encased in this eternal winter, and when the children meet up with the beavers, um, it's a children's tale, right? The beavers, and, and the beavers tell the children this, this cautious excitement. Aslan is on the move. It's almost like i got to whisper it. But they're giddy with it and they're excited about it. The great lion is here and he's on the hunt. He's on the prowl. He's moving. And, and Lewis is just wonderful with words. And I, and I think he, he really parallels the poetry that David gives us in, in verse 4. And this is what he says um, in the book right after this, this little statement, Aslan is on the move. This is what he says. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any, than any more of you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it, has some, it had happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand. But in the dream, it feels as some, it has some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It's this sweetness. A proper authority brings this sweetness to your life. And I don't know how many of us have maybe experienced something quite like that, but the imagery David is, is providing for us is this desire for, for all those who come after, the statement to the nation, 
is this desire to experience life in its fullness, in, in its miraculous existence. And God's desire for us as well is not one of pain and disappointment, but redemption and enjoyment. I am the door, right? Jesus saying, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture, peace, because the thief only comes to steal and destroy. And I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, an abundant life. How does that even look? Can we even imagine such an experience of abundance? So David begins this, this section, right? I, I went over the, the conclusion of submitting to a proper authority, but he begins it with presenting the authority from which he is speaking. Right? What's the authority that David is submitting to? What's the proper authority that David has submitted to? It is the word of the Lord that is on my tongue. It is the God of Israel that speaks. It is He, the rock of Israel, that has said these things that I am now sharing with you. And he follows this little introduction with two qualifiers of authority that bring about this, this beautiful sweetness to life. And the first one is authority that is true. Authority that is true. When one rules justly over men, when one rules justly over men, it is when the one, the authority, rules justly over men that is when life may flourish. And how painful is it to bear the weight and consequence of injustice and lies? The reason authority needs to be married to truth and reality for life to flourish is because when authority divorces truth, justice collapses along with it. And you cannot rule justly. Viktor Frankl, if you're familiar with it, is a Holocaust survivor. And he penned this in, the following, in his following book, the, the Doctor and the Soul. And he says this little snippet. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate con consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of hereditary and environment. Or as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil. But I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Majdanek were ultimately prepared not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desk and lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. A falsehood, not a truth. The authority of your life, for it not to be destructive, one to yourself and to those around you, needs to be true and conform to reality. Not the other way around. Because when you don't, atrocities follow, don't they? Life is meaningless, nothing sacred, reason is sacrifice. And under that banner, one will attempt to justify the murder of six million plus. David is not only speaking to future kings of the nation, but the nation as a whole. Don't deter from the truth to true authority that is God and His Word. And we know Israel's history. And we know what happens when they did not do that. So David was justified by God. And because of that, if Christ were present in his time, I would imagine he would have submitted completely to the office of the Messiah and his lordship. Because Jesus even says to Thomas in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth, and the truth and the life. And even more so when he speaks to Pontius Pilate before he's condemned to die in John 18, 37. When Pilate says to him, so you are a king, after Jesus' response. Jesus, Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, this, this purpose right here, I was born. 
And for this purpose I have come into the world. You ready for it? To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the, who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Jesus says of himself, I am the true authority. There is no law book that I turn to to know what is right, to know what is wrong, to know what is good, to know what is ugly, to know what is beautiful. I am the definition. And what we see is this, this oughtness that Jesus presents and this oughtness that David submitted his life to, that violence not ought to be the answer, starvation ought not to exist, evil ought not to thrive. But what Jesus brought and David appealed to was a teaching and completion of the way the world should be. That justice should reign and truth should reign and submit ourselves to an authority that is completely and utterly true. This is why Jesus proclaims to his followers and his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So the second qualifier that David introduces in this, in this segment is the authority, an authority that is reverent. An authority that is reverent. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God is what follows. That's what follows that sweetness. And there is a profound truth about human authority that David shares, not only in this passage, but with his own life. That the greatness of a man is a man who is under authority, not the authority. And this is best seen when David spared Saul in 1 Samuel 24. And when um, David, uh, Saul went in to relieve himself, and David cut off the robe of, Dal of Saul's, um, a piece, the corner of, of Saul's robe. And what does he say? He says, my lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen the Lord, seen how the Lord gave you into my hand into the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put my hand out against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For the, by the fact that I cut the corner off of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of wickedness comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom did you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from my hand. And we know how Saul responded to that. You're the better man. David submitted himself to a greater authority and because of that he was arguably Israel's greatest king. The greatest of us are not those who flaunt power, but empty it in the direction of truth and justice for others. And this is why Jesus' response when James and John requested that they sit on each side of his throne, he shows them what true greatness is. Mark 10, 42 to 45. 
You know that those who, con- who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, flaunting power. But it shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave his whole self to vindicate the justice of God. And we see that in Romans 3, that it speaks of the redemptive work of Christ. And this was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. God just held the injustice. He didn't get rid of it yet. He's holding it until the time of Christ to place it on him. David is urging all those who live on after him to seek and submit to the authority that is true and reverent and fear of God, and of just rulers and just rulers that fear God. The second appeal is to honor the covenants. To honor the covenants. Verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. So after David's description of a proper authority, he follows with a question. And that's what we see in the beginning of verse 5. For does not my house... My reign stands so with God? Doesn't my kingship and my time over king of Israel fall into this category? That I was a proper authority? That I was a just ruler? That I was one who feared the Lord? And he quickly follows this with some evidence to support this. And what does he use? Out of all the victories, the conquests, the experiences David has been given to him in his own life, he chooses This one above all others. The everlasting covenant that God had made with him. For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. It is David's experience of God's everlasting covenant that he holds on to for the remainder of his life. And he urges all people to come after, all people currently living after he's gone, to remember this. So what is the lesson that David is is sharing about honoring the covenants? Well, the first is to remember them, to remember them. And this is an important lesson because we see in Scripture that when God remembered the covenants, he acted miraculously for the betterment of his people and because of Christ, the entire world. Genesis 9, 15 through 16. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, And all the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature and of all flesh that is on the earth. With Moses in Exodus 6, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And he sends Moses to be their deliverer. 
Psalm 106, this is David's own writing here, 40 through 46. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage, and he gave them into the hands of nations. So those who, who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them. They were brought into subjugation under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes, and they were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. And for their sake, he remembered his covenant and he relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. It is this remembrance even that even God remembers his covenants. The Beatitudes are, are the same exact thing. They're encouragements for us. And even after David's great sin, it was the covenantal promises of God that left him to live the remainder of his life with hope. And so he reminds us all to follow suit in his, his last words. Remember this everlasting covenant. Remember the proof. Remember the covenants of Abraham, the covenants of Moses, the covenants of David. And the second lesson in honoring the covenants is to keep them, to keep them. Imitate your Father that is in heaven and honor your covenant promises, whatever it may be, to your church, to your marriage, to your parenting, to your work ethic, to your holiness. 1 Peter 1, 13-16, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Our submission to the Lordship of Christ demands of us action in striving towards the work for which he has given to us. And we should press on to accomplish that in His name. Hebrews 12, 1-2 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely. And let us run with endurance, run with endurance the race that is set before us. As fast as we can, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. David's confidence and the confidence he implores, implores, uh, implores us to follow is not just the covenant that he made, but the security in which it is executed. For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Covenants, when they are honored by remembering them and keeping them, become the treasure of our lives. Ecclesiastes 9.9 Enjoying the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, that he who has given to you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil, I wish you toil under the sun. Malachi 2, 13 through 16. Again, honoring this covenant by keeping them. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with the favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? 
because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. The third appeal that David uses in his last words is to seek to prosper in the Lord. Seek to prosper in the Lord. For he has made with me this everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself first. He arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. David sets forth this other rhetorical question, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? He's given me the everlasting covenant. He's made it secure. So will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire as well? And that's essentially what he's saying. And, and it's imitate him on this. This is what he's trying to, to re, relay to his people. And these verses sound very familiar because Paul echoed these in the New Testament. Romans 8.32 For he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Or 1 Corinthians 11 be imitators of me, Paul speaking, as I am of Christ. So neither David nor Paul are pushing this God will give me everything I want, even evil things type of mentality because the, the support for this is in the very next verse. For he, will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? And he immediately follows with, but worthless men. But worthless men is the worthy men, the worthy men and women, the righteous ones that have the prosperity in the Lord, that get the help from the Lord, that get their desires, their righteous desires from the Lord. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. They can't be grabbed. They can't be, be, be held and, and held on to. And that's what David's first advice in this part. It's when we seek to prosper in the Lord, which is beware of worthless living. Beware of worthless living. But the worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron in a shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. This, this imagery of a field is not unique to what David is speaking about now, nor to Christianity. Both Greek and myth. Egyptian mythology, excuse me, had this idea of a field in the afterlife. The Egyptians had the field of reeds, where when the time of death came for an Egyptian, they would transition to another realm, and if they were justified by the gods, they would live eternally in the field of reeds, and it would be a, a mirror image of one's life on earth. The Greeks had the um, Elysium fields, where, where the ones favored by the gods would live peaceably in this this Elysium field, and be given immortality. But David's imagery is a little bit different. It speaks to a different conclusion to these fields. He says the worthless are placed there like thorns thrown away. And because they cannot be touched, they cannot be held, they cannot be coddled, they cannot be anything. They're just thrown in there. 
Because of their wickedness, they're instead cut and burned by a man armed with a spear and of iron. Very similar to a parable or an imagery that Jesus talks about in John 15, 5 through 8. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever it is you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Understand this, that prosperity in the Lord is not riches, but Jesus himself. Our lives are worthless and ready to be burned unless they are given life by the true vine, Christ himself. And with it, we have an, an advocate that not only seeks our good in this life, but also in the next. So David's second advice is a little less obvious, but it's to live honestly, live honestly. This comes out not so much out of what David says, but what he includes. The remainder of this chapter, if you've never read it before, is a listing of David's mighty men and warriors, the heroes of legend that rode into battle with the mighty King David and won many victories to be remembered by the people for all time. Like Josheb Bathhebeth, try that again, who wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And Eliezer, who rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand still clung on to that sword. And the men returned, the Israelites returned, only to strip the slain, the dead. And you can't forget about Shamana, try that again, who took his, strand, his stand in the midst of a, a plot of ground full of lentils. And when all the men of Israel fled from the Philistines, he defended it, and he struck down the Philistines. And the list goes on and on, listing David's mightiest men. And then you get to verse 39, which is the very last one in the chapter. That, that last name, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Uriah, the man David had killed to cover up the adultery he had with his wife while he was in battle is recorded among David's mightiest men. Not because of David's sin. Not because David felt bad. I got to put that guy in there. Just put him on the end. His name is simply there. And then it's followed by what? 37 in all. There's no distinction. There's no, there's no, he's just one of David's mightiest men. Heroes. And, and what just gets me about this is it, it speaks so much to David that when you seek to prosper in the Lord, you, you do so by living honestly before God and before men. He didn't try to strip Uriah's name from the books. Nobody can ever, ever find out. I mean, we, 30, 30 generations from now, they'll, they'll just remember me as the great king. No. 
They won't. They will into some regard, but they'll also remember Uriah, the Hittite. 37 in all. 2 Corinthians 8.21 For if we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. David didn't necessarily have to include Uriah there. But he did. He did. We are not to speak of our sins proudly, like, look what I got away with. I didn't die. Remember that part? No. He says he's humbled by it. And he includes it. That's why we're given Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast. This is Paul speaking. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Remember, David, uh, David did not have Christ yet. He had the promises of the Messiah. He had the everlasting covenant. So in these verses, when he's he, he can't reference Galatians like Paul did. Paul can't talk about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't have that yet. But what did he have? The everlasting covenant, the Davidic covenant. And that's exactly what he, he refers to in this segment. He boasts in the, in, the, in, the, in the everlasting covenant that God has given him, which is about Jesus. And Paul, who does have the cross of Jesus Christ, says, but far be it from me to boast, except, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We are not a defeated people, but a redeemed people, and nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's move on to our application. Uh, I got a couple here that we'll, we'll go through. The first one is just listen to David. Simple enough. Listen to David um, by planting yourself on the rock. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. It didn't just, it was a great fall. Jesus, he, he, every chance he got, he tried to plead with people to understand that I am the supreme authority. David, again, with his ignorance, because he didn't have all the revelation of God yet, but he had what he had is appealing to the people, appealing to generations past that would, come, that would come and go, seek the proper authority. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I'm the proper authority. And therefore, the proper authority has a name and it is me. Second, live honorably. For listening to David, we're living honorably. The honorable life is not an easy one, but it's a solid one. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 13. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. It is a war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And also Romans 12, 17 through 19, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far it depends on you, because you can't control everything, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And thirdly, again, if we're listening to David, boast in your weakness. Boast in your weakness. Boast in the cross of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. This is Paul. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. It gives a different perspective to weakness, doesn't it? Therefore I, this is now Paul, based off what the Lord said to him, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For, this, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with my weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So listen to David. Listen to his words. Listen to the words of Christ that brings it to a, a more fulfillment. And secondly, live for the name of Christ. Live for the name of Christ. Death for, um, death for Christ can sometimes be easier than living for him. Paul, Job, Moses, Elijah all begged God for death when times were hard. They all begged God, just kill me, please. It is just so burdensome. 1 Peter 2, 16 through 17. Live, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So with these words, David gave the throne of Israel to his son Solomon, who would, who would ask God for wisdom that the world had never seen and is only surpassed by Jesus Christ himself. Israel would enter an era of peace, and wealth that was beyond what this world has known and would then forget the words of David until the world was made ready for the arrival of the one for which it was made, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly and Holy Father, we thank you, Lord, for our time to sing, um, worship, praise, hear your word read, Study it, Lord, for it is the bread of life that feeds us both physically, both spiritually, mentally, on every aspect of our being. Father, as we now reflect on your own last words that you said that we are to serve the church, our communities, our one another, Lord, I pray that you continue to aid this church, our members, one another, to serve not only our friends and family, but those who we don't know and that we may be given opportunities to share the glorious grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ wherever we go. And we thank you, Lord, for our country. Uh, we thank you for those who sacrifice so much and those who have given the ultimate sacrifice as well. And we ask your blessing this morning in Christ's name.
Amen.